For KLSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel. Oklahoma voter turnout dropped to a little more than 50% in last week's general election. Turnout is down from 56% four years ago. Only five counties statewide had an increase in voter turnout compared to 2018. Neva, what must Oklahoma do to increase voter turnout? (laughs) Well, I think that's going to be an ongoing conversation, something we've talked about for years on this program. Um, And it is disappointing. I mean, you think about the, the amount of money the intensity and the uh, involvement of these candidates uh, for months and months on the campaign trail, trying to get their message out, uh, trying to appeal to voters. And then when it comes down to Election Day, as you say, Michael, I mean, uh, we had a six-point drop in voter participation over four years ago. So, um, and, you know, when you look at this, I mean, it's a trend certainly that uh, is an issue nationally. I mean, it's not something uh, that is uh, certainly uh, just here in Oklahoma. I think the uh, projections that I've seen uh, by the uh, U.S. Elections Project, uh, they were saying that uh, turnout, the turnout rate would probably be around 47% for this year's midterms uh, nationwide. Uh, they were only seeing uh, a little over a dozen states that were seeing just a slight uptick in their um, in their turnout based on that versus uh, the 2018 numbers. So uh, it is a problem. It's a problem in the country. Uh, certainly, I think uh, we've even seen and talked about uh, in Oklahoma that uh, you had groups like the Native Americans who uh, had begun a very intense uh, education uh, project to try to, uh, to to try to educate their votes on the necessity to uh, get engaged, particularly in elections where they felt like there was a clear contrast with some of the candidates. So um, I think uh, I think if, as everyone reflects and goes back to the drawing board, I think it's uh, uh, a number of things come into question. First of all the party structure uh, in the country, the fact that we have uh, uh, the two dominant parties in in the United States, Republicans and Democrats, having a very difficult time uh, being able to build party loyalty and and support in terms of uh, the grassroots. Now we can talk about how that, you know, changes in terms of the straight party voting. But in in this instance, I think the takeaway is we all need to be uh, very very, I think, aggressive uh, in conversations with uh, family and friends and co-workers about the importance of voting, mm-hmm. because I think what we're seeing is clearly uh, we've got a lot of Oklahomans, a lot of Americans that are not buying into the idea that every election is important. We know that two years from now, presidential numbers will go up. They go right. up nationwide. Uh, but that can't be the only time that we that we have participation in this representative democracy. Ryan. Well, Neva, I think that your point about party structure is really interesting. You know, we saw $35 million spent, or maybe more, you know, 35 to 50 million on the on the Democratic independent expenditure side. That doesn't even count Republican ex- independent expenditures. And then you look, you know, we had Senate races. I mean, other folks were doing things to try to drive turnout, you know, get voters to the polls. Um, you know, and I said last week, I think that, you know, maybe it would have been interesting to see what would have happened if none of that money would have been spent. You know, Mm -hmm. would we have had the exact same results? Would we have had the exact same voter turnout? Voter turnout may have been higher if people, you know, weren't 
disengaged from all of the negative campaigning and, and people feeling like there's really they're not choosing between two affirmative platforms instead of like choosing between the lesser of two evils is the way that a lot of voters see this. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one of the things that used to happen and you know, I remember it even whenever I ran, even in the early two thousands, uh, you know, you'd have precinct captains in every precinct for the Democratic Party. Uh, you would have, you know, county party chairs that took that job seriously, uh, and they really worked uh, in those jobs. Now, I don't want to say that the county party chairs that are there today aren't working. I think that, you know, they are to some extent, but they don't have a lot of the resources. Uh, they have a very difficult message to, to deliver, uh, and, and they're doing it in an environment that it's even harder to talk to voters right now uh, because voters are, I think, disenfranchised from both of the major political parties. I've talked about how we need to have a multi-party system because neither of the two parties really speak to the broad coalition of Oklahomans or Americans. But when you look at the turnout numbers by county in Oklahoma, it really shows, it tells the story of why Joy Hoffmeister and why uh, Gina Nelson and other Democrats statewide didn't do better. Uh, because when, when we were talking about Joy Hoffmeister and Gina Nelson, if they were going to win, you know, we mentioned several times on this program, they had to win Oklahoma County. Uh, you know, they had to win Tulsa County. They had to win Cleveland County. They had to pick up votes in Comanche County. And if they were going to do that, not, they not only had to win those, but they had to win them big. And what you saw is actual voter decline in those areas. And you saw voter turnout increase in rural Oklahoma, uh, which I guess will bring me to my, my final point here. We hear a lot about uh, rural disenfranchisement at the state legislature, usually in connection with state uh, questions and, and, and initiative petitions, where rural Oklahomans feel like they have their political power taken away from them and that's imposed by the urban areas. Well, in these statewide elections, it's kind of the reverse right now, where the metropolitan areas for you know, years now have been voting Democratic, but they're just outnumbered by, you know, 75 or 74 other counties, uh, depending, you know, what the election is. So the, the turnout really broke against Joy Hoffmeister, Gina Nelson, and the Democrats entirely because they, they didn't get out where they needed to get out. And I think the question of turnout, when you talk about uh, basically the framework of 50 to 60 percent is your universe of likely voters coming out in these elections, uh, it, it becomes very difficult to see Oh, how do you expand that? I mean, how do we grow the voter base, uh, folks that predictably come out not once every four years or once every eight years, but consistently come out in elections, not only midterms or presidential, but they come out for school board or, or city council or special elections, whatever it happens to be. And I think uh, I think this is, a, you know, this is a reflection on, uh, I think, society's view of of, of where they place value on voting. And uh, it's something that I think even as you listen to these Native American tribes in particular talking about trying to educate their folks who have, you know, in many instances been very poor voters, uh, trying to trying to build that uh, uh, educational awareness of the importance of it. And you have to start with young, with young people. I mean, when they become 18, do they register to vote? Do they begin voting? Do they get engaged? And then the, the other kind of element, I think, overarching all of this conversation is the fact that when you infuse hundred, hundreds of millions of dollars in, in big states, tens of millions in states like Oklahoma into the campaign process. We're always going to have that. That's what it takes to run campaigns, communicate your message. But does that suppress vote in the, in the, in the, uh, in the bigger picture? I mean, do folks just finally tune out? Do they make a decision, but then they finally, when that, that June primary date or that November general election date comes along, they decide 
yeah, it's a foregone conclusion what's going to happen, and I just don't have to take the effort or be part of the process of actually uh, casting my vote. One of the biggest impacts of the 2022 general election appears to be straight party voting. According to the election board, more than 40% of voters marked straight party, with 70% coming from Republicans. Also, more than half of the votes for Governor Stitt and Superintendent-elect Ryan Walters came from ballots marked straight party. Ryan, how big of an impact do you think straight party voting had on the election? I think it had a huge impact. I, I think that um, it had a huge, huge impact, especially in this this partisan tribal echo chamber that we live in, where it's really my team versus your team. And I think that a lot of voters see it that way. The voters that do that do manage to come out, we talked about lower voter, voter turnout just a moment ago, but uh, the voters that do come out often see it as my team versus your team. And uh, Republicans even more so than Democrats. I think we saw that with Republicans voting higher numbers and straight party voting. I think that they see party loyalty as something that's much more important to them. Uh, you know, as a Democrat, I, I haven't cast a straight party ballot ever uh, in my entire life. And heck, I even voted for a Republican this time around. Leslie, oh, Os- no. Leslie, Osborne. Flash, Leslie flash. Osborne got my vote, you know, because I just thought she was she's doing a good job. She's an incumbent. And let's let's rehire her for the job. Um, but I think that, uh, you know, straight party voting has always been defended by the party that benefits from it. Uh, back when I was in the legislature, I, I ran legislation to eliminate straight party voting. You know who showed up to, to beat it in, in the rules committee? It was, uh, it was Democrats. Uh, it was sheriffs, county commissioners, uh, you know, these party precinct officials that I was talking about earlier. They were the ones that showed up because Democrats, that was how they were still winning in some of these rural areas is that, you know, the yellow dog Democrat folks that'll vote for a yellow dog, they'll just go in and uh, do straight party voting. And that was it. Um, so I, I think that it, it should be off the ballot. Um, but right now, if Democrats did try to take it off the ballot, Republicans will say, well, you're only doing it because we win doing it. You know, the same way that Democrats were saying it, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago, whenever efforts were trying to eliminate it then. So uh, I, I do think that it is concerning that we have a lot of voters that are going to the polls that are, aren't voting, you know, based on candidates uh, or even based on the money spent. I think that we have kind of moved into this position now where the number of actual undecided voters in the state of Oklahoma, maybe in, in America, but but especially in Oklahoma, the number of undecided voters is an incredibly small bucket whenever we're talking about partisan races. Now, we get into things like state questions and stuff like that. you got more fluidity between uh, between the parties. But in partisan races, it's the, the die is almost cast, whether it's a legislative district or a statewide race right now. Neva. Well, I mean, straight party voting is something that uh, um, you're right, Ryan. It's in the eye of the beholder. Do you stamp the rooster? Do you stamp the eagle? I mean, that philosophy of just straight party voting is not really just a mindless, uh, I, I'm not going to think about who's on the ballot. Oftentimes, I think it is a reflection of the voter uh, recognizing that the people that align with them and their party affiliation have the philosophy, have the view, have the ideas uh, that they want to see uh, really become part of, um, you know, part of governing. And so I think when you look at this uh, this uh, continued increase in straight party voting in Oklahoma, I mean, clearly back in 2014, we were at about 34 percent straight party. You know, now we can, we've incrementally moved up and I think that uh, I think that is going to continue to be the case. And when you think about it nationally in the last presidential uh, election, I mean, 80 percent of the voters across the country, a lot of research showed 80 percent said that they plan to support the the, um, their party's nominees from president, Congress, 
all the way down to uh, the offices on their ballot in their in their respective states. So um, I think that uh, the, the the notion that it's a it's a bad thing uh, just doesn't wash. I think it uh, obviously, as you say, I mean, when Republicans are the dominant party, uh, Republicans, uh, you know, are certainly not going to lead the charge to eliminate straight party voting any more than Democrats for decades uh, did the same when they were the dominant party. But I think in terms of the conversation of uh, is this something that an individual state wants to see. I mean, Oklahoma is really only one of, I think, six states mm-hmm. uh, that has straight party voting. Uh, and one of those, uh, I think, has uh, Indiana has what, what's called a, a partial straight party. I mean, on some, on some races, they can straight party vote. So um, there have been states in the last decade that have eliminated straight party voting. Whether that's something that uh, gets any traction in Oklahoma, I've certainly not heard that conversation. Uh, but it's something, you know, we might see bubble up, but I don't see a great deal of uh, uh, enthusiasm, I mean, in in just general conversation with voters about changing it one way or the other. I think they like that as an option. And certainly in this instance, we saw what the impact of that was on, on these elections. But when you think about the secondary races, I mean, secondary Republicans on the ballot uh, from lieutenant governor, state treasurer, state labor commissioner, mm-hmm. uh, all of those folks, they actually had more votes cast than uh, than the uh, uh, the top of the ticket with the governor's race. So, you know, I think people are paying attention. The ones that do get to the polls, I mean, do have formed opinions. Uh, and we'll just see if the conversation moves uh, any particular direction on this idea of state of straight party voting. Well, you know, I think that the Hoffmeister campaign saw that and the, and the campaigns that were supporting Joy Hoffmeister for governor saw that straight party voting was going to be an issue for them. They, they needed Republicans to cross over. And so that's why you saw you know, folks like J.C. Watts, former Congressman Watts, on, on TV. I mean, it wasn't so much that Congressman, it's like, oh, well, I think that he's, you know, he's a good judge of, of gubernatorial candidates. What that was really doing, I think, was to try to give Republicans permission to, uh, to cross over and say, like, all right, well, I'm, I can vote in this one because I've got, you know, I've got political cover here. I've got somebody else that's doing it. I can do it. I'm not just, uh, you know, uh, hurting my team. Uh, but I think that what we've seen is an increased party discipline among Republican voters, and we've seen, you know, Democrats just haven't kept up with that. And uh, with with that in mind, I think if we put straight party voting, it's it's not ever going to come up in the legislature right now, and the governor wouldn't sign it. It's just not a, it's not a thing. But uh, interesting thought experiment is if we put it on the ballot and ask Oklahoma voters to, to vote on it, Neva, I think you might be right. I think Oklahoma voters might vote to protect it um, rather than to get rid of it. But at least give them a say in it. At least maybe give them a say in it. Yeah. 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 Oklahoma City Senator Greg Treat wins re-election as the leader of the Senate despite a challenge from Norman Senator Rob Sandridge. The Republicans approved another term for Treat in a caucus vote behind closed doors. Neva, was there any? Uh, was there a strong push to deny treat another term? You know, I I don't know what the. It'd be hard to say because this is, as you say, Michael, a behind closed doors. Right. This is this is caucus business, family business, in both the Democrat and Republican caucuses when they when they meet and decide their leadership. Uh, something where they uh, there is a there is a process. There clearly was. Uh, uh, was in this instance uh, two names that they chose from in terms of who would uh, be the, the next uh, president pro tem. Uh, Senator Treat uh, uh, is going to be for the next two years, continue on in that role. And I think uh, 
you know, I think when we when we see this, this is so inside baseball. Most folks don't pay any attention, don't really have much understanding. Certainly, even less interest. So, I think uh, when we when we kind of get the upshot of this for the Senate, I mean, part of it, I think, to look at is the fact that there are going to be a lot of new faces. I mean, there's Mm -hmm. eight new Republicans out of the 40 Republicans that are going to be freshmen coming to the building the first time. And uh, just uh, this week, we're sworn in and uh, will start their duties uh, and begin to um, uh, begin to engage in, in their newly uh, elected capacity. So uh, we'll watch with interest as the as the uh, both chambers begin to uh, kind of develop their uh, their talking points and what their what their uh, particular issues that they're going to focus on in the upcoming session. That I think will be the thing that will be. Uh, something that we'll pay a lot of attention to and have a lot of conversations with here in the next couple of months. Right. Well, it's my understanding in the Senate Republican caucus that it's a secret ballot. Yeah. So it's not even a voice vote. You don't raise your hand. It's a, it's a legit secret ballot. So we've got 40 Republican senators, uh, 39 of them now can say that they voted for Greg Treat. Uh, <laughs> with the, well, 38. I'm, I'm sure that everybody knows that Rob Stanbridge, Senator Stanbridge voted for himself. But, uh, you know, so they, everybody's got plausible deniability here. And I think the the reason for that is so that once you elect that leadership, everybody can, you know, try to get back together. The question is, is whether Senator Treat, President Pro Trump Treat, is going to be able to get them back together. The the talk at the Capitol all during last session was that the Senate Republican Caucus had become what the House Republican Caucus was a few years ago, where you had a uh, a more a much more conservative far right group uh, that, for the House leadership at least you know, felt like they were causing trouble. Uh, you know, they're, they're making it difficult to get difficult to get things out of committee, even with a super majority, getting things off the floor, you know, creating issues in floor debates, uh, making caucus meetings, you know, very disruptive. And what did the Republican caucus do? Well, you had leadership. I think, you know, Chairman Kennedy was a was, uh, leader in, in raising money for an independent expenditure group that went out and targeted those far-right members and beat them uh, in many instances, if not in most instances. Uh, and, and the House Republican caucus since then has been very unified. Uh, I mean, you may have a, you know, a few issues where you peel a few members off, but for the most part, they've been very unified. Everybody this last session said, well, the Senate Republican caucus is where the House Republican caucus used to be because you have a pretty good division, at least you know, two different camps, maybe three different camps in the Senate right now. Um, and it'll be interesting to see. I, I think that there's no immediate threat to Senator Treat uh, remaining president pro temp. He could be challenged at any time during the next two years. I think it's most likely that he remains president pro temp for two years. But how he navigates that division uh, during this legislative session, especially when you have issues uh, like school vouchers that are going to come back up. You know, the, the president pro temp is the most powerful person in the state Senate, yet he had uh, his voucher bill killed, even though they held the vote open until midnight that night. He had his voucher bill killed. Um, and... The rural senators, rural uh, Republican senators, were the ones that really uh, provided the death knell for that uh, for that vote. So, you know, I think that uh, this is going to come back up. We've got Ryan Walters as the new super- superintendent of public instruction. You've got the governor that just got reelected. They both believe in the voucher bill. It's going to come back up. Can Senator Treat? get his caucus to put it over to the House whenever whenever uh, he puts that bill on the Senate floor. And that's always going to be the fascinating thing with any piece of legislation is mm-hmm. the math of the can you get the 25 votes uh, to uh, make it make it work on any on anything legislatively. And I think this is where we will see uh, it'll be, I think, become very clear uh, early in the session uh, what, uh, you know, kind of where, how unified both the House and the Senate are with their with their respective membership 
in terms of what they want to see move forward and whether or not that conversation um, meets with uh, resistance or meets with acceptance by the by the governor uh, as he begins to craft his state of the state, begins to think about the uh, uh, the items that are going to be most important to him. And you're right, Ryan. I mean, he telegraphed that punch uh, on election night uh, in his acceptance speech that uh, he wanted to see parents more involved, more have uh, more choice. And certainly all of that is uh, um, moves to the whole conversation of vouchers again. Will that look differently? Will there be a different take on how to uh, kind of move the football on that issue this time? I mean, I think that's uh, a lot of folks are kind of sitting back thinking that that may well be the case, that you just can't bring the same thing back as is and say, second round, we want a better, you know, we want a, a, a better ending to it. Will there be more conversation and will there be uh, some give and take uh, by all parties or is everybody going to double down and just see what happens? So it'll, it'll be fascinating as we get uh, ready for the next session. A special election to legalize recreational marijuana is getting a pushback from the Oklahoma Southern Baptist. The organization representing the largest faith group in the state expressed alarm at the rapid advancement and acceptance of cannabis. Ryan, with the vote on state question 820 set for March 7th next year, how is the group feeling about this opposition? Well, I don't think it's unexpected. I mean, we've all seen the movie Footloose. We know how it ends. You know, everybody dances. Uh, so, this, you know, I, I think that this isn't surprising. Um, it, it really is, you know, I think, you know, they, they just have to check a box. They feel like this is what they've got to say to their congregants. When, in fact, their congregants are probably using, not probably, are definitely using medical marijuana legally. They have several congregants that probably used marijuana before it was even legal under a medical program. Uh, you know, the same way that Baptists drank liquor during Prohibition. I mean, that's just the way it is. Uh, because... Everybody does. I don't care what church you go to, what denomination it is, whether you go to church at all. Uh, you know, the, 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 I think that um, you've got a lot of congregants that are probably going to show up on uh, March 7th. A lot of Southern Baptists, including the campaign manager for, Mar uh, for State Question 820, Michelle Tilley, who grew up in the Southern Baptist tradition, is going to go to the ballot on March 7th and vote yes on State Question 820. Uh, now, are they going to show up at church the next Sunday and tell their pastor they did that? I wish they would, uh, but they probably <laughs> won't. They probably won't. Um, you know, I, again, I, I think that, uh, you know, they, they can say this, uh, you know, some of their congregations going to follow it. Some of them aren't, uh, and they'll still be Southern Baptist whether they vote yes or no. And that's right. And I'm, you know, I'm a Southern Baptist, just like Michelle, Michelle uh, Tilly uh, came from, as she said, the, uh, uh, her background in uh, the Southern Baptist faith. But it, there are differences of opinion. I think in this instance, what you had was Oklahoma Baptist as an entity, the umbrella of all of the individual churches across Oklahoma, Southern Baptist affiliated churches, making a statement of concern, a statement of opinion, uh, and as something they've consistently done, as you say, Ryan. I mean, this is something where uh, there is the broad belief that uh, legalizing addictive drugs for recreational use does have problems. I mean, in terms of its impact on families, its impact on uh, schools, neighborhoods. I mean, all of those things that uh, um, there are many who believe are vulnerable to this type of exploitation. There's clearly arguments going to be made on the other side, just like I think uh, in some of the um, uh, some of the statements that I heard even from uh, Jed uh, Green with uh, the uh, group that he's involved with, talking about saying marijuana's here, it's here to stay, and made the, made the uh, statement uh, something to the effect that it's about who gets the money, the classrooms are the 
the cartels, well, that sounds like a pretty good soundbite and also one that uh, might be the um, um, the makings of uh, of a political campaign to try to uh, uh, to pass the issue. So, you know, we're gonna we're gonna hear a lot of give and take, a lot of you know, as with any issue where there's uh, uh, competing. Uh, ideas and uh, attitudes on the on the subject. It's something that uh, ultimately the good news is voters have a date in March that they're going to get to come to the polls if they really care about the issue. They're going to have the opportunity to say yes or no and uh, have an impact on what the outcome of the election is. And marijuana is here. It, it's not going anywhere. It was here before 788. It'll be here after 820. And again, it comes down to do you want it to be safe, regulated? Do you want the people that are using marijuana, like myself, to be able to walk into a store and know that the product that I'm getting is tested. It doesn't have pesticides or heavy metals and contaminants and, and mold in it, which is probably what I was using before I was able to test it, right? So, you know, that uh, regulating it, taxing it, where does the money go? Um, those are those are the questions. It's not a matter of, are we going to have marijuana or not? We've got marijuana. It's do we want it in a safe, regulated system where we've got compliant-minded businesses that are running it and the state regulating it, and we're getting tens of millions of tax dollars to go to the very concerns that the Southern Baptist raise, uh, you know, mental health and substance abuse treatment. You know, we're, we're looking at tens of millions of dollars to go to address those things. You know, if we if we don't do this, then we just lose that money. And the voters, when they address the issue of medical marijuana, I mean, I think what we saw were many folks that said, "Okay, this is we can go this far. There is a structure. There is a there is a reason, and uh, they could they could buy into that. Uh, whether it was just for the reason of they had a family member that had." Uh, uh, gone through the dreaded end with cancer and needed uh, uh, needed some relief, and the medical marijuana, you know, provided that in some instance. So, when we when we look at this debate, I think it's uh, as you say. I mean, it, people are going to have to kind of step back and parse it and look at where we are today, where the regulation is, the medical uh, marijuana authority, what's going on. Um, and whether or not they want to see that basically kind of by the board and have full-blown legalization of marijuana. And I think we'll see stories and anecdotal um, information out there about what's happened in other states. And voters will have uh, probably be inundated in the next uh, uh, few months with a lot of information that they're going to have to sort through. And maybe, and I haven't seen any polling, and maybe you have, Ryan, uh, as to where people are basically kind of presetting their attitude. I mean, are they already so receptive to it that it's kind of a non-starter that a campaign's going to change much one way or the other? Or is it very divided still and people uh, are open to more information before they make a final decision? The U.S. Supreme Court listened to arguments in a case challenging the Indian Child Welfare Act. Opponents say the measure is a race-based system imposing unconstitutional burdens on state and violating equal protection guarantees. As supporters call it the gold standard when it comes to defending the best interests of children. They also worry a ruling against the law could jeopardize land and water rights for tribes and affect tribal sovereignty. Neva, what are you your thoughts on the hearing? Well, you know, it is so complex. And I think when you had every single justice uh, asking questions, this uh, uh, the oral arguments went for, I think, three hours. Um, Which is unusual. It's yeah. very unusual yeah. and very complex uh, questions being asked. I mean, clearly this is an issue that is so monumental. I mean, in terms of uh, uh, the complexity and the impact and the uh, the 
intensity of the parties involved on all sides. And so I think the court is, uh, uh, the court's got a tall order on this one. Uh, they, they will have until probably early summer when they come back uh, with their opinion. But uh, when, you, when you look at this, um, I, you know, I think it really, it gets down to what vantage points you start with and uh, where, you, where you are. But the gold standard argument versus, uh, you know, the sovereignty issues versus, you know, the historical uh, issues, uh, all of those things kind of pile on on top of each other. And not being the attorney in the room here, I certainly wouldn't uh, be able to uh, uh, give a very good analysis on the legal legal side, except to say the upshot is listening to what uh, justices said in their questions, reading what uh, little I've read at this point of kind of the whole debate back and forth, I would say it's jump ball and, and uh, this will be one that again, will be very fascinating to watch. Ryan. I don't think either party is going to win everything that they want here. Uh, I think that that was clear in Justice Kavanaugh's questioning um, uh, about whether this is a race-based classification or a political classification. Uh, important to think, I mean, we, we, I think it's easy to think of, you know, Native American peoples as, as a race. Uh, but in many instances, citizenship to a nation, to a tribal nation, isn't based on race. You know, we have you know, some tribes that do have a, like a blood quantum, but we have others that don't. Um, and it's, it's about membership and citizenship uh, in that tribal nation. So for the longest time, courts have looked at, one, Congress's plenary powers, and, and several, several justices went, went out of their way to describe the plenary powers as, as absolute unqualified. The Congress has plenary power over the administration and regulation of Indian affairs in the United States of America. I mean, that's in the Constitution. And so when Congress has that power to regulate, they passed the Indian Child Welfare Act, ICWA. They did that based on the you know historic, horrendous uh, treatment of Native American peoples and children and family separations. And we, we can talk about the, the terrible stories that we learn more about every single day uh, as, as more and more is uncovered, literally uncovered, as they're, as they're, un, uh, as they're uh, uh, digging up bodies uh, in some of these instances. So um, there's, there's real justification for why Congress passed ICWA. Um, and for the longest time, courts have looked at Native American, you know, one, the plenary power, so Congress has this absolute power, but then they've gotten around this issue of race because they've looked at it as it's in the Equal Protection Clause in the, in the 14th Amendment. Uh, they look at it as um, a political classification, and courts have done that for a very long time. Now, there is kind of like the third different uh, tier, you know, so like the third preference, you know, so that, you know, the, the different preferences of, of child placement. One, the third preference, if you can't meet the other two, is to place a child in a, no, place a, a native child in another tribe's uh, in the family of another tribe's custody. So not even necessarily, necessarily the tribe of the child uh, or the baby, uh, but another tribe. And uh, Justice Kavanaugh, I think, was, uh, was talking about, is this really a political classification then? Because we're talking about not just within a tribe, but outside that tribe. The, the attorneys defending ICWA uh, made a point that said, you know, some tribes actually share land in common with other tribes, so it makes mm -hmm. sense. It's not a situation of where you're taking a baby from Maine and placing them in Oklahoma. They said that they couldn't find an instance of anything like that happening. So this idea that it creates those situations. Um, but I think that that, that provision, that, that third preference, is probably the thing that's most likely to be struck down by this mm -hmm. court. Um, but I think that ICWA itself and the first two preferential uh, placement of Native American children within uh, other uh, Native 
families as a preference, I think that that, that, that stands and survives. And, you know, it's interesting. We're talking about tribes uh, nationwide, and I yeah, think that's an important right. thing to uh, uh, point out. I mean, not only the Cherokee Nation here uh, based in Oklahoma, but uh, there, there was a Wisconsin-based tribe, a Washington-based tribe, and also a California-based tribe involved in this. So, And I think you're right, Ryan. I mean, Justice Kavanaugh kind of he, – he probably – uh, distilled it down kind of to the the bottom point, and that was, as you say, uh, it. these are difficult constitutional issues, but really it seems that the two that are clashing is, um, you know, tribal sovereignty uh, and the fundamental principle that uh, constitutionally we operate off of, and that is that we don't treat people differently on account of their uh, ethnicity or ancestry, so uh, or their race. And so I think uh, it'll be interesting to see as these judge justices uh, really get into the weeds of this and and try to uh, uh, try to come up with the, their uh, their opinion uh, how this comes down. But I, it was very it was very interesting to see everyone come to the oral arguments with really strong, well-prepared uh, uh, arguments to, to be made before the court. Well, when you've got kids involved, everybody's going to be intense. <clears throat> As a parent, I understand that. I, I read some of these stories, and boy, you know, you talk about you know kids being, you know, the baby Veronica story that everybody talks about. Like, I'm firmly a believer and defender of ICWA, but you listen to that story, and you're like, oh my gosh, you know, anybody losing a child after rearing them for a year and a half, I mean, that's you're just going to tug at your heartstrings, right? So I think the intensity is there. Uh, important thing to remember is that ICWA is an act of Congress. It's not part of the Constitution. The, the, what the United States Supreme Court is doing here is deciding whether all or part of ICWA is unconstitutional. Uh, so whatever happens here, Congress will have an opportunity on the back end to change it, uh, you know, whether they do it or not. I mean, Congress, can and, do, and Congress, Congress can't do anything yeah. now. And, he, but. and con- <laughs> Congress passed this 40 years ago yeah, or 45. Yeah. Or, or I more, mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at donate.kosu.org.